All right, Professor Latinx, and uh, here we are in the studio with Rajiv and Seth and Emily. We're going to talk about today, we're going to talk about Black Panther, Ryan Coogler's film that knocked it out of the ballpark, right? <laughs> I mean, geez, one of the highest grossing films in the comic book cinematic universe, and that says a lot because those movies make a lot. Um, but yeah, I want to ask you guys right out of the gate, like, Wow, what makes this movie so special in terms of comic book movies, comic book aesthetics, and in terms of content and shaping devices? Um, Rajiv, you want to launch us? Yeah, sure. I can. I can start out. Um, definitely, Black Panther is kind of a phenomenon. Not even just in terms of like how the standard Marvel movie is a um, kind of event in its own right, where everyone kind of gets together and goes watch it and goes and watches it. But Black Panther was kind of special in that. It was a Marvel movie that had a predominantly black cast in a era where, like, even now, Marvel movies kind of have that kind of lack of different perspectives where m- the vast majority of the main characters are just the same kind of homogenous type of person. Where even up until now, we had this movie before a female protagonist in a Marvel movie at all. So definitely it was in part a break from the homogeneity of Marvel movies as, as, as a whole. But it was also kind of a break from a lot of the Hollywood type of movies as well, where even outside of the Marvel sphere, sphere there wasn't really a movie that had this kind of huge wellspring of uh, people going to watch it while also having a predominantly black cast like this, at least not in the scale. Yeah, great. Raji. What, Seth, what's on your mind? Yeah, I could bounce off that. I think just having a movie that is a predominantly black cast is important and crew as well, the people who worked on the movie, people who researched taken within the context of all, you know, 10 years of Marvel Cinematic Universe and then years before that, sort of in the beginning of the golden age of comic book filmmaking, plenty of white protagonists before then. And they just did it so well. This movie that needed to be made for such a long time, they did it well right off the bat. Um, Having not just a movie with black people in it, but having such Afrocentric themes and issues brought up, um, I think it, it made it, like a black movie instead of just a movie with black people in it. Yeah. I love that. Yeah. That's really, um, astute. Yeah. Ruth Carter, right. Walking away with an Oscar for Mm -hmm. best costume design. And wow. I mean, talk about exquisite, beautiful work that's anchored in and respectful of tradition, but at the same time, uh, present tense and future sort of oriented in its in its um, design, right? Emily, what's on your mind with Black Panther? I mean, sort of spiraling off that idea of design, I felt like it was one of the most visually engaging Marvel movies. I feel like they kind of tend to have more of a washed out palette, but they really pushed hard on vibrant colors and pulling from actual cultural African tribes to design their costumes, but also kind of pulling from that comic booky aesthetic of having bright colors that kind of pop out and work together to complement each other and it just makes it a very like beautiful movie to watch yeah that's true the the comic book films even though they're comic book films very often don't pull the vibrancy of the color palette of comics right Mm -hmm. um but here we definitely see that yeah no you're right i hadn't thought about that um yeah um, what about, so yeah, we've got a, an incredible f- film where you have those working behind the camera and in front of the camera, African-American, pan-African, right? Diasporic African, um, all sorts of 
hybrid uh, hybridizations, Afrofuturism, um, and within that, there's tension and struggle, right? Tension and struggle, um, but you know, within the community. And I don't know if you guys want to sort of comment about that, but you know, with I'm thinking T'Challa and Killmonger, in, in particular, but maybe there are other areas. I think I'll start out, even before Killmonger is introduced into the film, you get this kind of, well, before he's introduced to Wakanda, you get this kind of very, well, the thing that stood out to me the most when I first watched this movie was this kind of clash, this contradiction between traditional ways of doing things and kind of a more progressive, forward-thinking, modern, modern way of kind of interacting. You have this scene early on during the whole ceremony, which I found very, very surprising to me to like see it happen where um, during the ritual combat where all the tribes are going through and proposing whether they would want to challenge T'Challa for the throne, you have Shuri kind of raise her hand and make a joke about how the traditional garments were uncomfortable and how she just kind of wants to go home. And speaking for myself, um, even today in terms of like religious traditions in my culture, Indians, uh, Indian religious culture, um, there are many moments where like you have to wear those traditional clothes and you don't like them. And I've definitely been on that side where I'm like, I just don't want to wear this. I just want to go back and go home and just go back to normal. And I found that to be very, very like salient in terms of how they show kind of how a modern person would interact with those traditional structures. Mm-hmm. And as a wellspring throughout the entire movie, you have this real clash between traditional ways and cultural ways to the point where even like the music really strongly reflects that. Whereas in Wakanda, you have this very traditional theme. We don't really hear that in Marvel movies at all where it has this strong vocals, this like flute, these traditional instruments. And then with Kilgrave, you are oh, not Kilgrave. That's from Jessica Jones from a, Kil- a Killmonger. You have this more modern hip hop style music. And what's really, really awesome to me is when he goes to Wakanda, you have a track which has those two intersected where you have hip hop with those traditional musics interspersed in there as well. And that was really, really cool to me to see that contradiction play out um, throughout the entire movie. Yeah, hybridities, right? The importance of not not the sense that by looking to your culture, you somehow can't also be a part of another culture. And by being a part of another culture doesn't mean that you necessarily have to lose your ancestral mm-hmm. ties, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, really great. Rap and that Sen- Senegalese, right? Um, beautiful kind of um, music score, right? Um, Seth, where where are you at with? Yeah, I like what you said, Rajiv, about like the tensions between Shuri, um, her more modern like look and perspective, a more natural um, thought progress, maybe against uh, a traditional way of doing things. So the greater um, conflict between the movie between Killmonger and T'Challa, between a more conservative and a more progressive or radical mm-hmm. um, ideology, is justified. Um, with the conflict that's happening within Wakanda itself, not just within, with outside sources. So you see people even within his, um, his council uh, arguing or upset with the lack of progress that's been made yeah. with the previous king and how he's probably not going to do anything either and how a lot of the elders agree, you know, let's just keep doing it like we're doing it. So this isn't a new... Killmonger, what he brings to the table, isn't a new um, problem. It's one that's sort of um, undercurrent even mm-hmm. within Wakanda itself, even within their sort of bubble. And I also think that sort of the two political ideologies that sort of Killmonger and T'Challa kind of help to represent 
is something that's also foregrounded in civil rights. I mean, starting way back, you have Booker T. Washington and W.E.D. Du Bois, and then moving forward, you have you know Malcolm X mm-hmm. and Martin Luther King. So I feel like they definitely sort of build on those two narratives, and they don't really try to moralize it. I feel like they're both trying to present them as they both have their own points, but there's something that has to, like, they need to marry together to work mm-hmm. together. At least it's, that's the point that the film's making. Yeah. Yeah. So we talked a little bit about cosmopolitanism and uh, kind of pan African radicalism. Yeah. So Killmonger kind of being representative of one and then T'Challa the other. Um, the film even ending, right? So the credits roll, and then you have T'Challa in front of the kind of in Vienna, in um, front of a United Nations crowd. Um, presenting a cosmopolitanist, right, um, worldview. But we kind of put a little pressure on the fact that, well, what does this actually mean? Like, you know, is this a kind of Obama post-race moment? You know, what happened? Why Killmonger as our sacrificial lamb? Mm-hmm. And what does that say about kind of black radicalism in this, in this narrative? I think if I if I if you don't mind me pulling kind of away from necessarily black radicalism itself, I think Killmonger is yes kind of a commentary on kind of the way that going back to your roots can be kind of perverted and like twisted to be used for other ends. But I feel like Killmonger as a whole is like a very very strong condemnation of US foreign policy for a tremendous amount of time. Even going back to the 1960s, you have their involvement in the assassination of Lumumba in the Congo mm. where kind of Throughout history, you have this kind of intervention in kind of the democratic will of those people. And kind of Killmonger, he is kind of a representative of that along with, um, I forgot his name, the uh, the CIA agent. Oh, Ross. Yeah, Ross. Yeah, yeah. He basically straight up says that we've trained Killmonger in this specific thing to st- destabilize governments mm-hmm. by targeting them in times that they're changing power. And like Killmonger is just using that training to just go straight to Wakanda and destabilize it, just like the U.S. has done many times in the past. So I think kind of in a way that cosmopolitanism is kind of presented as a contrast to that way of interfering in other countries. Whereas even going back to like T'Chaka, right, Um, T'Challa's father, you see him go into, like you see them go into other countries and intervene to fulfill their own ends. But then when it comes time to help those people, they just don't care. They're, They're isolationist, but only as so far as it behooves them to stay out of those countries. Right. And then you have, you know, T'Challa at the end saying, we want to build bridges, not tear 100%. them down. Yes, yes. That's the, that's the kind of condemnation of yeah. Killmonger and his, like, trained interventionism mm-hmm. and destabilization to but a more... At the same point, I feel like Killmonger has a lot of points. I mean, there's a lot of moments in the movie where you're meant to empathize with him. And especially even, like, when he's first introduced, when... Uh, not as a child, but as an adult, when he's in the art museum and he's talking to the, you know, the director there and he, she like misidentifies an artifact. She's like, you stole all of these. These don't belong to you. Like that is a hundred percent true. The British museum is mostly just stolen things that they, from their imperialistic era. I, I, I I wouldn't, I wouldn't, I would, I would say that's one thing, but his overall ideology of kind of Let's replace conquer these and structures. Destroy. Yeah, let's conquer and de- let, let's yeah. let's toss over all these countries and rule them the right way, and that kind of has kind of 
a dark implication where, yeah. like, Agreed. rather than it being an equalist status quo egalitarianism, it just be one group replacing another right. on, as the top dog in the hierarchy. But T'Challa does, I mean, from his uh, conflict with Killmonger, he does walk away with a different point of view, yes. saying we need to actually break that intervention. Right. Like, we need to isolationist policies. We need to reach beyond. Yes, because Killmonger himself was kind of built up out of that lack of yeah. help. He, he didn't, he like lost his father. And he's a product of yes, yes. T'Challa's father's actions. 100%. Of his abandonment. Of that kind of like interventionism from mm-hmm. Wakanda and like that not caring about the consequences right. that came from that. Just kind Can't. of leaving it to deal with itself. So basically just going in, doing what you want that benefits you and then just not dealing with the consequences. Yeah. Yeah. I wonder though, this is sort of a bigger picture, but I wonder, we can empathize with um, Killmonger. He's a m- more nuanced villain than a lot of comic book movies have. A lot of them are very sort of one-dimensional. Um, he's the first one that's very complex and very um, uh, offers a lot of empathy from the viewer. But it reaches like a limit when we're like, we can like him and we can support his um, ideas and understand where he came from. But th- at the end of the day, like we can't support what he wants to do. And yeah. At, at that end, it becomes a little one-dimensional. And I wonder if it's because of the level of like abstraction that occurs in the movie. So we understand where he comes from. We understand what he's upset with, but we never engage with any of that. We see the roots of it in the diaspora mm. and um, colonization. And that leads to the effects that um, we understand Killmonger to deal with in society, you know, in America, but we never are presented with those issues really. So yeah. I wonder if that's maybe a limitation of our empathy with the character or the character itself. And also just having moments where he just, you know, chokes a woman. That's very, yeah. like right away you're like, okay. Or just straights up like usually in that scene where like someone has their loved one's hostage to try and find a way around it, but he just shoots her without a care right, in the world. Right. Doesn't even really succeed in getting the shot on him yeah. until way later. So let me, while we're on the topic of Killmonger and uh, Prince Najubu, um, fathers, Fathers. Mainstream films, TV typically has both, you know, in terms of African American and Latinx and others, you know, we don't, our fathers aren't even present most narratives mainstream, mm-hmm. or when they are, they're deadbeats. Mm-hmm. Um, and Black Panther does something different. Would, would you guys agree? Yeah. I mean, I don't think they sort of default to that narrative of the absent father. I mean, Killmonger loses his father, but it's part of the whole story. And he's a very caring, loving father. He does a lot for his son. And the flashback that we see with them is very generally, like, emotionally touching. Yeah, I mean, same thing or a similar story with um, T'Challa's father. Like, he was a king and he was very caring. Um you know, his politics, his conservative politics aside, he was like very close to his mm-hmm. son and it wasn't a deadbeat in any sense. And they have that reunion moment in the movie, which is one of the more like touching parts of the film. Yeah. I think. And I mean, they open the movie with his death and his whole family seems genuinely affected by his death. They're mourning the loss. Um, and he was like a highly respected figure, not only in all of Wakanda, but in his family. Mm-hmm. The mm-hmm. whole narrative is, I think, really trying to understand maybe this absent father trope and try to Mm -hmm. grapple with it instead of simply accepting it or rejecting it entirely. Yeah. I also like that uh, T'Chaka is not 
perfect. Mm-hmm. And in that moment where they sort of reconvene later when he gets his uh, Black Panther powers near the end of the movie, uh, you know, he says to him, like, how could you have done what you did? Mm-hmm. How could you just leave a boy behind? And then you have this real, like, strong rejection of that traditionalism where mm-hmm. he, like, has all his old ancestors standing there and he yells at them saying, you're wrong, you're wrong, yeah. you shouldn't have done this. And then that's kind of like as strong a rejection as you can get that he's going to do something different now where he's literally facing all of those people who made those decisions in the past and he's saying, I'm not going to do it that way. Right. Mm-hmm. And I'm not I'm mm-hmm. not going to, you know, be complicit in sort of the history that you have paved so far. Yes, yes. Where are we going with Nakia and Okoye and the women generally? I mean, you guys brought up Shuri, but yeah, let's talk about um, gender in Black Panther. Sure, he's great. I'm kind of, I'm, I'm torn about how women are presented in the movie because, I mean, you have a, a lot of strong women in this movie. Um, I think probably more like female main characters than male man, main characters. Possibly, I haven't done the math. But you do have, you know, Shuri, Akoya, um, Nakia, the queen. I would, I would um, say- I would say the female character they're more significant female characters in the film than male main characters in the film. Yeah, but they're not protagonists. They mm-hmm. all yeah. to some degree serve um as a, a serving role. But at the same time, yeah. like with Shuri, like Wakanda cannot exist without her. Black Panther cannot exist without her. I mean, she builds this technology and she is what makes him um able to succeed and grapple with all these issues behind every great man is a strong woman <laughs> yeah mm-hmm. i mean i that they have that moment in the beginning when he's uh you know doing that ritual fight for the king they say does anybody want to challenge her and sherry raises her hand and they're real to be a joke but i was like i want to watch that movie mm-hmm. <laughs> i want to see the movie where sherry gets to be the black yeah. panther and see her rule I, that, uh, that would be great <laughs> but it's just sort of played off as a joke to be fair it was a pretty good joke <laughs> Good joke, yes. Shuri's a great character, and she's yeah. a very fun, lively character. I really, I really do like how... I, I agree that the female characters aren't really protagonists in a way, in a, in a like, usual way that they would be kind of like driving the plot forward, but in, in a way they kind of are perspectives into this core issue that the movie is grounded in, this isolationism versus... Um, cosmopolitanism. Mm-hmm. And like each, of, each, of them, each of them kind of presents their own view of it. Um, Shuri less so than Nakia and Okoye, um, and obviously his mother as well. Yeah. She's kind of lessened to an extent, more focused on just kind of being a mother figure, essentially. So with Nakia, you have that very strong drive to become an more cosmopolitan, and Okoye is kind of more reserved traditionalist, and along with T'Challa as well, because that's where he's rooted in. And the movie kind of becomes about driving him away towards that and everyone as well bringing them from that uh, conservative isolationism to that cosmopolitan world worldview yeah and I, I do, they do feel like the the female characters have agency mm-hmm. i mean yeah, we 100%. see of like nakia's life outside of wakanda and she's very tied to that mm-hmm. uh, especially when they um bring her abroad and she's sort of yeah. he's like what trouble did you get in and she's like oh you don't even know yeah and you have that like really really great first scene where like T'Challa is just like turned into a blubbering mess when he sees yeah. Nakia. He froze. <laughs> and then like Okoye comes down and is like, yeah, I knew you were going to freeze up. It's mm-hmm. so obvious. And Okoye expresses a great deal of agency as well. Oh, yeah. oh, absolutely. In the battle when she has to make a decision, she's like, do right. I support my king or not? Do I take my place? She faces her lover and says like, I, I, 
I'm going to fight against you because you're making the wrong choice here. Yeah, like whether mm-hmm. or not we can define her as a protagonist, like maybe doesn't matter for what it's worth. They feel like fully realized people. Yeah. And not, you know, caricatures. Especially, I think that's a big problem with the black female representation is having them sort of falling into those yeah. pitfalls of just, you know, the angry black woman or mm-hmm. et cetera. And I feel like they avoid that because they feel like real people. Yeah, let's talk about masculinity in general, right? So, yeah, we have the mythology that sort of, you know, establishes the backstory at the beginning, and then suddenly, boom, we're in Oakland, 1992. We've got the riots that came from the um, beating of Rodney King on the TV, and then a kind of pan in the apartment, and posters you know public enemy we've got too short playing right in the trunk as our extra diegetic sound we've got you know um these uh, machine gun type you know rifles on the table kind of very huey p newton up on the wall as a poster um free huey i think there's even a james baldwin picture up there uh, along with some of the african traditional uh, tapestries and masks but it's all very um, sort of coded, masculine, mm-hmm. militaristic, right? And I'm just wondering if there's enough of other textures throughout the narrative to balance that, or if that seems to be still a dominant in the Black Panther comic book film universe. I think the film is somewhat hamstrung by being a Marvel movie, as strange as that sounds, wherein it still kind of has to have that ending fight where it's two men in cat suits beating each other up, <laughs> when for like basically the entire run, really, those scenes are kind of the most boring, because it just yeah. feels like action for action's sake, when the core of this movie is those ideologies that they're presenting. And rather than ending it with the clash of those ideologies in a debate, you have men in cat suits beating each other up. And that's not necessarily like a fatal flaw because at the end of the day it's still a Marvel movie it kind of has to have that to some extent it's kind of an expectation of those movies where it needs to have action I remember um, an article I read one of the some of the negative reviews were talking about how there wasn't enough action and that was <laughs> God, like really? negative yeah and <laughs> like there was too much <laughs> yeah I thought it was too much as well but, <laughs> but like kind of there's this expectation of action and the movie kind of needs to play into that right. and because also to risk like to be fair, to respect the history of the comic as well, there is a lot of action in the comics as well. Right. So they need to show that off as well. Like you don't show up to a Marvel movie to see an hour of diplomacy. Although arguably that would have worked better for this movie, but... but it would have been fun to watch. I don't I, know. Yeah, I would have enjoyed watching it. I don't think it would have gotten the money, have, but... Yeah, exactly. <laughs> but I did feel, I agree kind of with the action scenes were the scenes that sort of lost my attention. It mm-hmm. did just feel like fighting and I was like, all right, yeah. Let me check my phone. <laughs> it's kind of it's really interesting to me how kind of Wakanda is presented as a very modern, very like forward thinking place, and it still has a traditional beat. But despite all of that kind of forward progress in technology, you still kind of have a king. You still have trial by ritual combat as a <laughs> means to decide the worthiness of rule, and that's easily abused by someone like Killmonger, where he just comes in, he beats up T'Challa, yeah. and then he just completely wants to burn the country down. He has no care about Wakanda at all. But because that right is how they decide their ruler, which is kind of rooted in the past, way in the past, it kind of breaks apart. And maybe this will be addressed in future Black Panther movies, but 
even at the end, there's still a king. That right is still there. Nothing right. has really changed in terms of those traditions. So it'll be interesting to see where they take it. And we also see a bit of that in the thread when the Jabari tribe comes in the opening and they yeah. say, you know, you have a teenage girl over here who's trying to change all our traditions with modern technology. And you, you can tell that there's still some, like, tension in there. Even though they're technol- technologically think, advanced, they just kind of... I find the, the Jabari tribe to be a very, very interesting part of the movie and one that I kind of am really mixed on. Um, but on that topic, I think it was less that they were concerned about her being in, like, the, I think their concern was more that she was a kid, and they just kind yeah. of, like, ageist about that. She's where, a like, smart kid, though. Oh, yeah, 100%. <laughs> no, she's worthy to be in that position, but I guess when you're in the mountains, you don't really know that yeah. much. <laughs> it is pretty amazing, though, that they sort of feed into this, you know, Marvel Cinematic Universe, you know, very strong uh, critiques of... You know, people that today have internalized a kind of colonial mentality, right? In mm-hmm. that sort of moment in, you know, the UN speech and the guy says, well, what do you guys have to offer, right? <laughs> and there's that kind of knowing moment like, you idiot, right? <laughs> but also with Agent Ross, as you guys brought up, right? Um, and Shuri, like, you know, you 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 scared me, colonizer. <laughs> um, but also how he's put in his place by Mabaku, right? I love that was like the best moment ever, right? So here's a guy kind of white splaining and you know the reaction was like uh, I could watch that scene over and over again, <laughs> right? Um but this is a, remember this is a comic book movie and we have Killmonger wh- basically putting in her place the white splaining of the you know the stealing of cultural mm-hmm. artifacts from Africa right and basically presenting a repatriation right um claim right you know this is all i mean have we seen this before i haven't i don't can't point to God, a, no. <laughs> a marvel comics movie where we see something as sort of layered and complex kind of post-colonial, right, um, in its critique and yeah. sort of worldview. Yeah, I think Black Panther, above all other Marvel movies, takes full advantage of the the things that science fiction can offer. So you can use science fiction like in Guardians of the Galaxy or in Iron Man to make cool suits and spaceships and aliens, or you can use it to, like, hold up a mirror to society, a warped mirror, you know, a science fiction mirror that better displays like the problems and the issues that we face i think that's where fiction like speculative fiction yeah i think that's where it works best and i think i don't know i'm just really happy that it were um they chose not that they chose i'm really happy that black panther was the one movie that did it really well because there's so many ways that movie could have gone wrong if they did not put the Mm -hmm. care and research into it that they did 100 percent so I think we've got basically a thumbs up on Black Panther, even if we think that or we're hopeful that, you know, the next Black Panther might um, put, uh, you know, women in those sort of, you know, protagonist spaces, even though they're strong and interesting already in Black Panther. But, yeah, I think we're all looking forward to having that. Um, Rajiv, I don't know if you wanted to add something. You seem. Oh, no, no, no. It's fine. Um, yeah. And. uh yeah, and, and I think we still have to think carefully about, you know, this idea of a kind of talented tenth to mm-hmm. get back to W.E.B. Du Bois, um, um, the sense that, you know, change 
it, it comes from that space and not the space of the people, the space right. of the street, and what kind of message that sends finally. And I think maybe we need to think still about this sense that while Black Panther innovates on so many levels, both um, in terms of shaping devices, what's in front of us, and in the writing, it's still Black Panther in that it's, you know, a kind of exotic other space where we're having the utopia built. Where Could we're have just seeing, called him Panther. Yeah, where <laughs> we're, yeah well, that and, uh, and, you know, we have a tr- long track record of being uh, in comics and in film in general where, yeah, otherness is acceptable when it's royalty or when it's exotic, mm. when it's out there somewhere else. But when it's in our home, in our backyard, the mainstream doesn't like to have otherness, right? It doesn't. It doesn't want that kind of complication in the in our very backyard. Yeah, so it's kind of like you could. A lot of people view it as kind of like being pushed in. When I mean, it's there right now. So. Yeah, yeah. That cry of forced representation. It's like, no, just take your blinders <laughs> off and look around you for a second. All right. Well, thank you, uh, um, all of you, for this great session on Black Panther, Professor Latinx. And yeah. Cool. Thank you.